0: So, if you're joining us today, the last couple of weeks have been exploring the book of Revelation. Quite a quite a challenging book to unpack, but we've had a really good time doing that. And all those sermons are online if you want to play catch up. You've got to remember, as we kind of look at Revelation, that um, that this book was actually read in its entirety. So when people would get together, they'd read the whole thing together. And uh, we're kind of having to do what you do in sermon series, which is, you know, kind of have these week-by-week things as we kind of work our way through. And and quite intentionally, we've been going through them... um Quite deeply, but from now on, and some of you may be going like, "Man, how long? Is We're under Revelation five is twenty-two chapters. How's this going to go?" We're going to intentionally be taking quite uh, big looks at some of the overarching themes for the remainder of the book. The first five chapters really set us up to understand what's happening for the rest of it. Um, and as, uh, as I said, we've got a couple of guest speakers so far. Uh, and also, it's, a, there's, um, it's felt like a little bit of a roller coaster, not in an um, emotional way, um, but there's a sense with revelation you kind of clunk, 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 clunk. We're starting, uh, and then you hit the top. And it's like, in that first vision you see, the first moment you see Jesus and his deity for the first time, which we did on the very first sermon. And then you go like, whoosh, you go down. And it's like, then you're like, Jesus is speaking to the churches. And uh, and it's like, you've got these challenges and critiques and encouragements and promises. And now it's like, whoosh, we shoot back up to heaven and we've, we're going to get a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. And then, whoosh, we're going to come back down to earth and see what's happening on earth. And, and it's like, and actually... Uh, in the earliest commentary on Revelation, which was from Saint Victorinus in the third century, he actually points out there is the cyclic form to Revelation. And Craig Coaster in his commentary explores this in more depth. Seven times this, the Revelation cycles between what's happening uh, between earth and heaven. Now, again, it's not a linear book either, so the, the roller coaster metaphor falls over real quick because it's like. Uh, there are times where in Revelation it will literally look at a, a heavenly event or an earthly event from a whole lot of different angles. But then it's really confusing for us Westerners that love linear because it's like well, well no, hold on a second, and we get disorientated and think, again remember that this was read aloud in one big hit and it was like an orchestral symphony with all of its textures and sounds and and we have to dive into certain notes to understand them and then try and zoom back out but, uh, but that's what's happening for the original hearers, which saves us from like getting stuck in the weeds on certain things. Uh, and even uh, as I've been working through all these commentaries and doing a whole lot of work on this stuff, it's interesting because uh, scholars today are like, oh, I'm not sure, and we're going to hit some of that today, I'm not sure whether, it, you know, it's this or that, you know. But at the end of the day, some of that doesn't really, most of it doesn't really matter. The big sweeping arc is what we're really trying to stay focused on. Um, and so, for example, uh, today there'll be a, a statement uh, from the Scripture, in one of the verses that says, I will show you m- what must take place after this. And everyone's like, oh, finally. What's going to happen in the future? What's it? And it's like, no, sorry to disappoint, because shortly later in Revelation 12, it talks clearly about Jesus' earthly ministry. And you're like, well, no, no, no. It's happening after this. And that's, you know, chill. It's okay. We're okay. Uh, this is an interesting book. Uh, but we've got to remember that this is, again, this is one glorious story celebrating the victory of the Lamb and calling us to faithfulness to Him. And I've really enjoyed preaching this last couple of weeks, and as I was preparing it, I was like, wow, this is actually a word in season. We love that, don't we? We use that a lot. It's a word in season because um, I think uh, it's tricky to stay faithful to Jesus, and not because of persecution, um, but because there's just so much noise out there and so much distraction and there's so much cultural formation happening in terms of like we just swim in all sorts of stuff and we're so used to it, we don't even see it. And so then things like attending church regularly just drop off the priority list and all that sort of stuff. And it's like to stay passionate and faithful for Jesus is a mission. And this book calls us to that in spite of cultural pressure. It's so beautiful. Um, and so, so far we've had John, as I mentioned, had this glorious vision of Jesus. I mean, Jesus gives these messages to the churches and into the churches, Jesus is saying, I'm present. I see, I know, I commend you, I critique you, I call you back to your true identity, and I give you these rich promises if you remain faithful to me. And then the last church uh, in Laodicea, uh, they challenged to open the door so that Jesus could come in and commune with them. And then in chapter 4, um, we see John encounter uh, uh, Jesus once more saying this. He says, After this, and there in heaven, a door stood open, and the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet says, Come up here, and I will show you what, what must take place after this. Now, all of the language that we're going to be um, engaging in today is soaked from Old Testament passages, particularly Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7. I, haven't, I don't have the time in today's talk because I'm trying to do a slightly shorter one so we can spend time actually doing the stuff rather than hearing about it, actually worshipping. The Risen King, um, to, to dive into a lot of those references, but it's just ripping with those images. And so uh, after this, so after Jesus has spoken to the churches, he says, "I will show you what must take place after this. Again, I must say we're not talking this is not a book primarily outlining um, you know, geopolitical events in the 21st century. Uh, this is a book again about uh, Jesus' triumph as the Lamb that was slain. Um, but then he says uh, he says, "Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this." Interestingly, um, uh, a lot of um, apocalyptic texts often tell the story uh, about the arduous journey that this person will take to, to go through these different kind of heaven's gates to reach God's throne. Like for most of the apocalypse, again, for so the original hearers, it's like, oh man, Jesus, like God, Jesus just said, hey, come on up. <laughs> like normally you've got a really battle to get up there, but it was a huge long journey. But God's so good, he's like, come on up, have a look. It's so cool. Uh, And then I love this, this is from Ian Paul's commentary. John, uh, he's British as well. John's description of his divine encounter creates a dazzling vision that fully engages the imagination to its limits. I love it. This is exactly what's going to happen. And so, you know, the problem is that you've all watched too much TV. So your imagination's a shot, you know. And we didn't watch TV. Uh, you know, I grew up as a kid, and, and we didn't get a TV until I was like 11. And everyone's like, oh, you've got an active imagination, mate. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't have TV. It's all up here, you know. <laughs> My mates said I was completely nuts. But I had a very – these guys didn't have TV at all. And so when they're hearing this, it's like, Ooh, they're all imagining it. So I'm going to have to help you with pictures, uh, to try and like jar 21st imaginations in terms of, like, into some sort of, uh, to try and wrestle with what's happening here because it will engage our imagination to its limits. So verse two, it says, "'At once I was in the Spirit, "'and there in heaven stood a throne "'with one seated on the throne.'" And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. And around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. And coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of grass, like crystal. Oh, you know what? Hold this, Jim. I just realized Perfect. (laughs) It wasn't planned. (laughs) Hopefully no one's tripping this morning uh, because this is really going to get you going. So in verse 3 to 6, you've got all this. um, And again, it's tapping into Old Testament imagery for the temple. It's like the temple was so beautiful and ornate and stunning. Um, and and then John's like pushing their thinking going, you thought the temple was beautiful and you'd heard all about that. It's nothing compared to the throne of God. And then not only is he doing that, but he's critiquing Caesar and his throne room. Oh, aren't you fancy Caesar? You think you've got a sweet throne. Check out what God's actually got. And so you've got all these beautiful stones. Uh, and he, so these guys like didn't have lighting and neon signs and all the brightness that we're used to. You know, it was fascinating. One time I picked up a mate that had been had done an eight-year lag in prison. And we went from the prison to Rickett and Mall down in Christchurch, and the thing that he said, he was like, "Mate, the colours are unreal," and we're just so used to it. We go because everything's trying to grab our attention. But he was used to just grey nothing for eight years. It changed his vision, and for these guys, they didn't have all of that stuff. So when uh, when John starts talking about some of these things, it's like the most beautiful and bright things that they can imagine. And all of this uh, glory, the the rainbows again are harking back and again connecting to the Old Testament promises of God's covenant with his people that he made, in this case through Noah. So all of this, and then you've got the lightning and then you've got the thunder and then you've got like the fire, which I love this, the flaming torches. And then all of it's like on this reflective sea of glass. You know, in John's time and as they're hearing this, it wasn't like glasses like it is today. That's why Paul will say things like, like we see like through a mirror dimly. For them, mirrors were dim and weren't that reflective. So like for them, he's trying to like say, hey, we've got crystal, Uh, which is, again, the most reflective thing they know. And they've got a sea of glass that's there in front of the throne. So all, like, everything that they're witnessing is reflected even more. Like, they're trying to grasp the glory of this, which is why, like, for us, like, I don't know what the biggest concert you've ever been to is, you know? Uh, For me, it was probably the Coldplay, We went to a Coldplay gig back in the day, and it was just probably the most incredible lighting show and production show that I've been to. It was like, wow. And so what John's trying to, do to his original audience as say, put all of the best concerts together in the same place, and all of the best production, and all of the best lighting, and all of the and can all in one spot, and that's still nothing compared to the glory of God revealed around His throne. It's huge. How cool is that? And so then you've got these twenty. Oh, I love it. Again, it's all this. Then you've got these twenty-four elders. Uh, which represent most likely, because i to turn a little bit of bhaji-baji here, but most likely these 24 elders represent the 12 t- tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. Um, and they're functioning, they're, they're fulfilling their role really as priests, uh, which you can hear, read about in 1 Chronicles 24. But ultimately these uh, people are symbolic of all of God's people uh, victorious overcomers, wearing their crowns, serving as royal priests, ruling over creation with the one upon the throne. And they're gathered around the throne and they're worshipping him. And this immediately begs the question, if you're listening to this, like, is Jesus at the centre for you? Like for, it's like the, the around, their, their life is orientated around the throne, around Jesus. And, uh, and that's, it's a challenge these days to keep Jesus at the centre. It's a constant battle for all of us, which is why we gather together here this morning to remind ourselves of the big story that we're a part of and to cheer each other on to love and good deeds, to cheer each other on our walk with Jesus, to orientate your life around Jesus means that you prioritise three things, to be with Him, to become like Him and to do what He would do if He was you. To be with Him, do what He did and to to be with Him, to become like Him and to do what He would do if He was you. And so that's, we talk about that a lot here. How can we orientate our life around Jesus more? It's not about being a cultural Christian that comes to Sunday once every every once a month, probably, right? No condemnation out there for anyone else. It's like, no, this is like worship and like my life is orientated. You know, let's keep moving. And around uh, the, four living, uh, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and inside, day and night without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. So you've got these four creatures. That looks like a tall album cover, for those of you that know that band, um, which is pretty cool. And we'll look at them later. Um, well, actually, let's have a look now. Uh, there's again. There's oh, so what are these these creatures? Um, most people th- it taps into some imagery again from Isaiah six, where Isaiah sees Seraphim with these wings that like just the, again. This is another glimpse of the holiness of God. we like God is so holy that these angels with six wings covered in eyes, like with two they're flying, but with four wings they're just shielding themselves from the glory of God. That's hardcore. And they can't even look at God. They just look at each other. And they just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled. And it says the temple shaking. Very similar to this vision that John's having. And so it most likely uh, we're very removed from this imagery. It would have made sense to the original hearers. But um, most likely it represents all of creation just worshipping the Lord. Uh, and the climax of the presentation of these four living creatures is not their own splendour, the interesting thing is, with like, it's very hard to, to communicate how how hardcore this is. Because if any one of these angels or beings turned up in the room right now, like, we'll probably all just be incinerated with their own glory and holiness and beauty. It would just be too much. Like, we'll just all turn into a puddle of DNA on the floor or something, you know? And yet these beings can't even look at the gl- holiness and glory of God. They're just like, and it's just like, you know, the thunder and the lightning and the cloud, you know, it's just so hardcore. And they, uh, and they serve neither function than to extol the character of God. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, Michael Gorman says it like this. More important, because we can get, this is again classic, our kind of thinking, we all hung up on this. It's more important than the identity and the appearance, appearance of the creatures and the elders, however, is their activity ceaseless praise and worship, hymning the worthiness of God as the eternal one and creator. The worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. And even when we humans on earth do not see it, participate in it or value it, only God is worth to receive what others, especially powerful political figures, may want or demand, our total devotion, our praise, our crowns. So in other words, you've got all of creation and earth worshiping God as all creation was originally intended to. And God alone should receive all glory and power, for who he created all things, a reality that challenges the pretensions of Caesar in John's day, and anything since that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Uh and so, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. Who They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. One of the main goals of this book is just to stir us up and worship for God. Okay, isn't, it, isn't it awesome? <laughs> Like, I love that you're here this morning. I've been looking forward to this for so long. We've got a special band especially and everything. So I'm like, it just, stir, it just stirs in us worship. And, and the opposite of true worship is false worship. And this is where in the in coming weeks you get the imagery of the beast. And if you want to know about this false worship of the beast, and you're like, what is it? Look no further than your pockets. Our money, where our attention goes, particularly with the use of our phones, the things we hold tightly in our hands, as a a metaphor, how we try and control so much of what can't be controlled rather than resting in God's upside-down kingdom. All of that stuff, like, that's kind of, that's anything that kind of captivates our heart's affections and our mind's attentions, disproportionate to what it is, becomes worship. And, and, like, we're hardwired to worship. So, like, everyone worships. There's not a person on the planet that's not worshipping something or someone or, you know, some people it's money and some people it's fame. And I was watching something the other day of um, these football guys celebrating a win, you know, and I was just like, wow, this is worship, like unabandoned worship. But it's just so empty, guys running around on a paddock, you know, kicking a little ball around, you know, and somehow that becomes this, but but like worship needs to be channeled somewhere, it'll find somewhere to worship, and so worship is, Revelation is challenging us here in our places of misdirected worship by giving us a glimpse of God's glory and, and the worship he deserves. And invites us to be cleaned and, and, and healed. How? As we worship him, the only one worthy of worship. And it brings perspective in this place of worship. It actually brings true perspective. Like I'm so looking forward to, to our response this morning by worshiping. Because some of you guys are going through very challenging times. Really tricky stuff, and as you worship, what seems giant will come into its proper proportions. So, oh, hallelujah! And and again, I just got to say this once more: like who, like suffering is part and parcel of this broken and fallen world. And um, I've said this a few times: the best is yet to come is true on an eschatological sense. What I mean is true in that. One day we will be in glory with him. That is when the best, but the best is, may not be to come here on earth. The, the Bible's filled, like these churches most likely are about to come under enormous suffering through Emperor Domitian. And they'd experience enormous suffering under Nero. They're still recovering from that. So it wasn't like, hey, it's all sweet. It's like, no, sometimes there is a lot of suffering in life, but let's lift our gaze to heaven's throne and let's just stay faithful to him and worship him and adore him and bless him. And he draws nears to us in our, our pain and suffering. And uh, so anyway, th- then things get interesting. Oh, I love this picture. Don't you think, I mean, they're, they're just, the, those elders just casting their crowns before the throne. I just, I think this is so stunning. Um, and like, it says they keep doing this. You know, this isn't in the Bible. This is extra biblical. This is, certainly wasn't in any commentaries. This is Harvey's overactive imagination from his childhood kicking in. But I just think of these elders and it's like, they look at God and his glory and all that, like all, anything of worth. <laughs> and I just, and, and, uh, and I'm going to unpack in a second the, the, the beauty of bowing down, of prostrating, of honouring God by, by, by lowering ourselves. And then it's like, oh, I dropped my crown. I better pick it up. I'm just going to put it up the crown. Oh, you're amazing. And it just goes like that over and over and over again because of how glorious he is. And then... And then it gets really interesting. Here we go. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? What's going on here? Who wants to know what's in the scroll? So quickly, the seven seals aren't the content of the scroll, but the events that lead up to its declaration. And that's going to be unpacked a little bit in the coming weeks. And the visions that John has continue to speak to us to be faithful to Jesus uh, when things like suffering and wars and disease and even death may be our experience. So we'll we'll unpack that soon. Um, But we live in this time between Jesus' redemptive work, which has been celebrated, and Jesus' consummated work, which we are looking forward to, his return in glory. Um, but here's what's interesting: is that the book of Revelation tells us what's in the scroll. After the seven seals are broken, there's seven trumpets, and with the seventh trumpet, heaven declares this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever. And it goes on to say that this scroll contains the plan of God to judge and save the world, as we confess in the creed, he has come to judge the living and the dead. But the opening of the scroll brings about the reign of God on earth. What's incredible about what's in the scroll is that it's the, the answer to the Lord's Prayer: thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like how many times has that prayer been prayed? Billions of times. The great prayer of the saint. Now we are awaiting the full and complete answer to that prayer, but the angel Gabriel probably is saying, who is worthy to implement the reign and rule of God? Who's who's worthy to bring about the kingdom of God, the government of God? And, And so then... Uh, It says, and no one on heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open to the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep, weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb, standing as if it had been slaughtered with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This is a very dramatic and theatrical uh, passage. Again, we're going to try and activate our imaginations here. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. I mean, try and imagine what it would be uh, if you thought, man, this is the way the world is and it will never change. That's the, it's the despair of Ecclesiastes. It's a tragedy. And so he begins to weep. The Greek word there is kleio. It's a, it's a term of the most dramatic form of mourning. If anyone's seen Israelite people mourn, they really can do a good job. You know, there's wailing and gnashing into the whole enchilada, man, it's all go. And so, so John is just like grief stricken that no one is worthy to see the rule and reign of God. And then there's this uh, this kind of moment where it's like, well don't weep. Look, there's the lion. There's the lion. And uh, and if you again in the first uh, century as they listen to this, you've got all this old testament uh, old testament imagery in your head and you can picture, here comes the lion. He comes to conquer, he comes to take over. He's strong and he's powerful. And then uh, instead of a little lion, John looks and instead of line sees a lamb. I mean, this is hilarious. Again, if you're listening to this in the first century, you're like, ooh, that's silly. You know, it's like, you know, you're on a safari. Like, Hey, Jen, check out the lion. And it's a little lamb. And Jen be like, ooh, that's funny, Harvey. Aren't you funny? You know, he sees this little lamb. It's been slaughtered, but it's standing. And Jesus is literally a slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Again, this is symbolic. The seven horns symbolize divine power. The seven eyes symbolize divine wisdom. The wisdom and power of God is lamb like, not beastly. And so he hears of this lion, but he sees a lamb. Um, Richard Borkman, in his commentary, says it's important we recognize the contrast between what John hears and what he sees. He hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had conquered. The two messianic titles evoke a strong militaristic and nationalistic image of the Messiah, of David as conqueror of the nations, the destroying the enemies of God's people. But this image is reinterpreted by what John sees, the lamb whose sacrificial death has redeemed people from all nations. By juxtaposing the two contrasting images, John has forged a new symbol of conquest by sacrificial death. This is huge. I mean, this tap, in the Gospels, they're like, when's the Messiah going to come? When's David, you know, the equivalent to David going to turn up and mow down this Roman Empire? And then like before that, you know, 200 or 160 years before Jesus, yeah, had Judas Maccabees who tried to do it, this big revolt with like, yeah, this messianic thing we're going to take over. We're going to take the land back and all that sort of stuff. Uh, David and Joshua and Judas Maccabees and others had used violence to kill the bad guy. And they... Promote the coming of the kingdom by violent means. This is the Messiah's task. Get rid of the baddies. And what's the easiest way to do that? Use violence. It's quick. Violence is tempting. John is saying the kingdom is coming, but through the lamb, not the lion. It's coming by being killed, not by killing. Jesus is called the lamb in the book of Revelation 28 times. Seven times four. Seven, this is all very intentional. John's done this on purpose. Seven is divine perfection. Four represents the earth. So 28 times genius. The lamb will prevail over all of the earth. This is the first time we see the lamb. So he is the lion. He has conquered, but he has conquered as the lamb. And interestingly, um, the Lion is never mentioned again in regard to an image or a symbol of who Jesus is. That's it. The beast later has uh, imagery that is lion-like. But Christ is called, uh, in the New Testament, Christ is called both the lion and the lamb. Satan is called the lion, but never the lamb. In Revelation, the lion metaphor drops away and the rest of the book only retains the lamb imagery for him. The rest of the imagery of Jesus in Revelation, I think I've got this up here. This is a Sam Harvey. The rest of the imagery of Jesus in Revelation needs to be seen through this key picture. Jesus overcomes through co-suffering sacrifice. God rules through the non-violent, co-suffering, love power of the slaughtered lamb. Friends, this is the revelation. Like This is the revelation of the book. That And we're going to see this for the rest of the way through, that Jesus comes in humility and uh, and, and in co-suffering love and his love is cruciform and that's how he changes the world. That's how he rules and reigns. So beautiful. And so then he went, this lamb, and he took the scroll because he's worthy from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne and we had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints the um i just this is encouraging sometimes i'm like god have you heard my prayers i still don't have that boat yet and you know you know that, that Lamborghini doesn't seem any closer either. And like, now of course they're all my selfish consumeristic will, you know, prayers and all the rest of it. But even those prayers of like, Lord, we long to see a change in what I knew. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or that sometimes it's like, Lord, are you hearing us? It's like, Yes. Like every, all the prayers of the saints is poured out like incense before the Lord, the sweet swelling fragrance. That's encouraging. I'm like, Lord, even if I'm playing the wrong prayer or there's something in your great cosmic plan that means you can't answer this, or what do you, I'm not sure, it's a bit of a mystery. At least you're hearing it and smelling it. At least my heart's been brought before you. And they sing a new song, which I think, again, beautiful. ever since there's these new songs that just get sung. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you've ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. I love this, from every tribe and language and people and nation group, we'll see this a number of times in Revelation that in the age to come, there is not a loss of cultural identity. There's no colonization that goes on with heaven. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's funny how like, you know, I think we all think heaven's going to be filled with people like us and it's going to look like a whole lot of people like us. It's like, no, it's going to look like a whole lot of people like in the world today. <laughs> and um, and if there was going to be one nation that we all turned into, it wouldn't be Kiwi, you know, Pākehā. It would be like... <laughs> Israelite, you know, you'd be Jewish. Uh, but no, everyone has their cultural identity and it flourishes and comes to life. And we're called again to be people that see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So as Lord, and, and you know, and, and, and particularly in our church, it's like, Lord, we want to see the bicultural journey, the, the healing journey that our is on flourish. The church will be a place where, uh, where we can model what it looks like for people's cultural identity to come alive. In heaven, uh, there'll be haka and bagpipes and African drums. And I'm sorry about this, but probably banjos. We're going to stick them right in the corner uh, at the back left and we'll turn them right down on the mix. But it's going to be all of it there. Can you imagine how stunning that's going to be? Like we have little glimpses of it like Olympic ceremonies where you see something of cultural identity getting expressed. And man, I'm proud to be a Pākehā New Zealander, you know, where I'm like, man, like we've, we've got a lot of brokenness in our history. But man, at least we've got, you know, to see the Māori expression shine on the national stage. Like every Kiwi's like, yeah. <laughs> Even Pākehā is awesome because it's like, you know, you're not Pākehā if you're Australian. You're Australian. <laughs> out to a pub in the UK, meet some Māori guys. Hey, bro, you're back here? Yeah, bro, you Māori. Oh, yeah, bro, you know. Well, so anyway, whatever. Gonna... And so uh, there's this beautiful expression of all this, uh, and and then it's like Paul, uh, John, sorry, trying to uh, comp, trying to articulate how many people are, are participating in this, and he uses like the biggest, the largest word in the Greek language is ten thousand. It's like literally the biggest word that they've got, the biggest number they've got, ten thousand. So he's like. Yeah, it's ten thousand times ten thousand, which is a nice way of saying like an innumerable number of people are participating in the worship of God. And so, right now, again, this is why the little roller coaster is helpful, because right now, oh no, hundred people in the room right now, and it's like, and it's like we're just this little group of people in the bay, worshiping Jesus, and we feel like such a minority as we stay faithful to having Jesus at the center of our lives and worshiping Him now. But you know what? You're not the minority. Anyone that's not worshipping Jesus this morning is the minority, according to the perspective of heaven. Billions just worshipping the lamb right now. Like it's just extraordinary. And we're part of that. Oh, so cool. And so we get to join in. And I love this. I hope that you guys will do this this morning as we finish soon, Singing with full voice. Was full voice, not half voice or quarter voice or three quarters or like even 98%, Was full voice. They sing, worthy is the land that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them singing, all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the land be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down again and worshipped. The Greek word for worship, which is used here, is uh, um, proskenio. To, it means to bend the knee. And it's used more in Revelation than in any other book in the New Testament. Christianity involves submission, bending the knee to something beyond myself, both in prayer and in worship. That we, prayer and worship enacts that submission. And it's hugely countercultural in an ego soaked world. The church is called to be this people who live under the lordship of Jesus now, to worship Jesus now in preparation for the age to come. And to fall on our faces is to make our own honour nothing compared to God's. Revelation Offers us a vision of a larger reality. It reminds us that we're not living in one world, but rather at the intersection of two worlds, that in the fullness of time will we be put back together. Revelation 21 and 22. And now we have glim- only glimpses and tastes of what that restoration and reconciliation will look like. But it says this the songs and hymns that are based on worship scenes from Revelation continue to be sung in Christian communities around the world, enabling many to experience its message with compelling immediacy. We get to experience what John saw this morning. Worship team, do you want to come up? And uh, this morning, of course, we're going to finish by worshipping. And we we want to give honour to the one seated on the throne. And we want to celebrate the triumph of the Lamb while we await the story to come to completion. Handel's Messiah has been written because Handel got so moved by what he read here in Revelation. And he and the most famous riff, right, is from 11, Revelation 11, which I, I read out earlier. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our, God, of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And he will reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, forever, forever, hallelujah, forever. Like that, for, for centuries, followers of Jesus have sung these songs and joined them with heaven's song. What John is witnessing is not something that's going to happen one day in the future. He's witnessing something that's happening right now. And he's saying this to the church. Like Jesus has just critiqued you and commended you and given, but now have a look at what's happening in heaven right at this moment. And what Jesus is doing today is he's calling us back to, as a community, to a purity, to, to coming back to, to restore the church to what it's meant to be. We we're talking about that last week. But now we lift our gaze to the throne and we see what we're part of. We're not a minority. We're joining in with the host of heaven to worship tribes and tongues and languages pouring out their praise forever and ever. He shall reign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords.